started this morning if you'd like a uh, an outline there are some on the little table in the back uh, if you want to grab one of those or it's in the faith life app if you prefer to look at it that way Uh, man i have thought so many times about um, preaching and then having worship after that because it's incredible for me i like and i you know when glenn preaches i don't get the same experience but when you spend a whole week in a text and the lord is speaking uh, and then you show up here and God continues to speak that same message through the worship. It's just powerful. And so um, I wish that you guys sometimes could have that same experience. I don't know, maybe we'll do that one day. We'll see. But regardless, it's pretty awesome to uh, to spend all that time and, and then to get there and, and or get here and, and then see God speaking that. I had the same experience again this morning, spending all week studying uh, this first passage, uh, first half of Exodus 19. And then this morning, just spending time with the Lord and the devotions that I'm reading, the scripture that I'm in. Um, God just again affirming the message that he's got for us today. So last week we covered a lot of things. Um, We we looked at the last half of of Exodus chapter 18 and we looked at how Moses is operating in terms of his leadership of the nation of Israel and his father-in-law comes to visit and and Jethro sees the way that Moses uh, is handling that leadership and he says Moses the way you're doing this you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to burn the people out because Moses was trying to oversee all of Israel by himself. People would literally wait in line all day to bring their cases, their questions to Moses, let him answer, and then they would go away. And so Jethro sees very quickly, and God uses Jethro to help Moses to see that he needs some other people in leadership to help him with that. And we took that passage, and we, we, we understand that Moses is calling what in this part of the Bible they're calling elders, which just meant older, wiser men. And we took that application, we said, okay, how is God calling us at the gathering place to structure leadership in a way that allows us to be the body that God wants us to be? We talked about how uh, I can't be, I can't fill the role of what we could, would traditionally call a pastor because I still have a full-time job and how God's calling all of us to participate in ministry. And we look specifically at God's call for us as a body to, um, to affirm deacons and deaconesses in our body. And so we talked a lot about that. We're going to dig a little bit into that, this, the, the latter half of the service today. So if you weren't here for that, you're going to get a little bit of that information. But I really encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast from last week because we're going to affirm both deacons and deaconesses. Uh, and there's more explanation in there and about that. But we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So we're going to do um, Exodus chapter 19 today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. And we're going to start off with, I typically read the whole um, chunk that we're going to study before we actually get into it. But a lot of times I do that when it's more in a story format. Um, and I want you to get the whole context. And so today, because it's, it's really a little bit differently than that, different than that, I'm going to kind of do it verse by verse. We're going to look at the first four verses first. So if you look with me, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So point number one is God calls Israel to himself so that they can know him. Right? We talked about before how God moves us from a place of knowing to a, uh, to a place of unknown so that we can learn something new. God calls him to himself so that we can grow 
in knowledge of who he is. And remember that when we use that word knowledge here at the gathering place, we're talking about gnosko. We're talking about knowledge that's gained by experience. Not just reading, not just hearing someone talk about something, but knowledge by experience. And that's what God is doing for Israel. As God is moving, if you'll, if you'll remember, Rephidim is where they had the battle with Amalek. It was good grazing land. There were springs there. It was comfortable. They had this battle. God is victorious. God shows out and shows them that they will trust in him, that he will give them the power that they need. And so this place is a place of comfort. And God says, okay, this was good for a time, but now I'm moving you somewhere else. We're going to go to Mount Sinai. We're going to go to a different place. And for us as gathering place people, this idea of growing in knowledge is not new insight for us, right? Looking at, at this from someone else's perspective, though, reminds us that God's working in our lives is going to move us from one place to another. That we're not ever going to be in one place for a long period of time. And this could be in a spiritual sense, it could be in a physical sense, it could be in an emotional or an understanding or a combination of any of that. But God is going to be constantly moving us, ourselves individually and as a church, to new places so that we can grow. And as we're discipling people, as we are, are sharing the gospel with people in our lives, we need to be watching for that movement in their lives as well. As we're spending time with those people that God has called us to, we need to be looking for that movement because it's a good, um, good um, place or a good way to see that God's working in their lives. Okay? And we need to be asking God both to move them and the role that we play in their lives as part of that process. We don't need to stay in the same place. If you're mentoring someone, that mentoring relationship does not need to stay in the same dynamic. At some point, that, that person that you're mentoring needs to, to be able to step up, but that means you've got to get out of the way and let that happen. If someone's not growing, they're stagnating, right? You think about a body of water. If a body of water ceases to have movement in it, it very quickly becomes stagnant, and it becomes not good to drink. Algae grows in it, it becomes yucky, okay? And, and if you think about this for a minute, consider a student in school, Right? If you're a teacher, you've probably had this kid, and I'll have to admit, I was this kid at one point in my life. A student that sits in the classroom and never pays attention is not really a student, right? If they're just a warm body sitting in a seat, really what they are is just annoying, right? Can I get an amen from a teacher on that, okay? I'm saying that, and Russ is talking to his wife and not listening to me, so that's awesome, okay? Listen, the same logic follows us in the church. If, if we aren't disciples, if we aren't both being discipled and also making disciples, then we aren't a disciple ourselves. If we are not active in what God is doing in the church, we are stagnant. And we all know that the point of our faith is to know God through Christ crucified so that our relationship, our reason for being can be restored and we can know God the way he desires for us to know him. But the process in, its, in itself is us changing from being sinful to being sinless. And we know that that is not going to happen while we're still alive, right? Everybody understands we're not ever going to get to that point of perfection. And so what that means is from the time we're born to the time we're dying, we're moving from a place of great sinfulness to a place of less sinfulness. But it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that that happens, okay? Therefore, if, if we are not becoming like God, if we are not daily being moved closer to Him, then we're not really being followers of Jesus. We're not being disciples. Followers follow, right? Disciples disciple. 
the very act of God bringing Israel to the mountain at Sinai is God moving them closer to knowing Him. And we're going to see later in our passage that Israel knowing and believing in God is the very point that God's bringing them to this mountain. The only reason they're going to the mountain is to learn something new about who God is. So God moves us. He calls us to action so that we can know Him. The title of today's message is Godly Leadership in Action because the only way we can be godly leaders is to be in action. If you aren't moving, you aren't learning, and as a result, you cannot have gnosko knowledge. You have to be moving at all times. God is moving us as a body so that we can know Him. The, the point of all of this movement, this transition over the last six months, is so that we can know God. Okay? This is not a growth spurt. This, this uncomfortableness, I talked with the, the staff and I had a meeting yesterday, we do, we've started doing that every couple of months, and we were talking about how there's some uncomfortableness that's happened since fall of last year, and, and this is not going to be uh, a, a, a thing that will just end at some point, okay? I'm just telling you. And the reason for that is because if I'm in leadership here, we're going to be following God, and that's going to be uncomfortable. It was not comfortable for Israel to go to Rafidim. It was not comfortable for them to have to go to war with Amalek. It was not comfortable for them to now have to leave this place that they've conquered and have possession of to go somewhere else. But that is part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I think that the church in America suffers greatly because in our minds we have this idea, and it's mostly because of our pride, but this idea that, that once we get there, we can stop there. In other words... The, the idea that is in American culture is that once you get to Rafidim and you beat the enemy, that you get to just camp there forever. And that's not what we see as we look at Scripture. Our culture is obsessed with competition. And we put it in every area of our, every, every area of our lives, right? Whether we mean to or not, it's a subconscious thing. And, and the result of that is that we look around at the people around us and we judge ourselves better than them. And we can justify that in our minds however is necessary. But we look at the people around us, whether it's the people sitting next to you or the people at the church down the street, and, and we, we believe a lie. We believe that we're better than they are. And then the second lie is that we convince ourselves that we deserve a break because of how good we're doing. Right? I, I know for myself that I'll be working on something at the house and I will have completed a task and I'm like, man, I deserve a break. I'm going to sit down and get me some cold water. Luke's shaking his head. He knows that feeling. The, the problem is, is that we, we do that, we justify that when God hasn't said, sit down and take a break. Right? Okay. So the enemy has convinced us that, that growth isn't necessary and that at some point in our lives it even becomes unnatural. The lie that the enemy tells us is, is man, you're doing so much better than those people are. Just chill for a minute. Just chill out. But that's not true because those are not the standard that we're held to. Those that are around us is not the standard. Christ is the standard, and we will not get there until we die, and so we must keep moving forward. Okay? So the enemy tries to convince us that growth isn't necessary, and that couldn't be any further from the truth. God is going to continue to grow and change us as a body until we become more and more like him. So as long as we are here, as long as we are meeting, there's going to be growth, and there's going to be change, and if you're on board with it, it's going to be exciting. But I want you guys to know that this is not going to be a process that just stops at some point. We're not going to get to a place. You cannot be a church that plants churches by getting to some place and going, we've made it. All of us have to be moving 
and, and discipling one another and mentoring one another. The, the reason that I'm here today is because Glenn invested in me. And he discipled me and he mentored me and God called me to this place. And my expectation is that I'm going to get to do the same thing with one of you guys. And I'm excited about that because I know that the blessing it's been for me. Let's look at verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Look, all that Israel needed in order to be rescued from Egypt was to just have faith, right? God said, I'm going to do this, okay? All you have to do is just accept my deliverance. I'm going to rescue you, and all you have to do is go along with it, okay? And, and if you remember, that's hard for them. As they're going through the process of God getting Pharaoh to the place where he says, yes, you can go, they squabbled about it. It was uncomfortable. Do you remember how they grumbled against God as he was in process of getting them out of Egypt? It was a process. It wasn't, God could snap his fingers and bring them out, but nobody would learn anything. Nobody would know him, which is the point of all this. God uses that initial experience to jumpstart their understanding of the fact that he was their God, and he was the God, but he used that first initial experience to get them there. And as we've already talked about, God wasn't done there. We see him again moving Israel into a new understanding. Now the thought is introduced that obedience is needed as well as faith. This is not a contradiction. It's a fuller explanation of the nature of a faith as response. The expectation and natural response of walking in faith is obedience to God. If you have true faith, you will respond in obedience. And, and this is not a new thought for us. We understand that. You think about the abiding cycle, what's step number two? Step number two is obeying what God says. Step number one is hearing his voice. Step number two is obeying what God says. And by doing that, we're going to see God reveal himself and gain a new understanding of who he is. We have talked about that so many times that we get blue in the face about it, right? I'm, I'm sure that when I said the abiding cycle, the image popped in your head. You thought about new member training. You thought about how many times we've talked about it from this platform. This is not new for us, and it should not feel new, okay? Israel, if, if they had chosen not to follow God and move from a freedom to this, from that place of comfort to this new place that was unknown and uncomfortable, they would not have experienced the fullness of who God is. They would have stagnated in their disobedience. Point number two. The giving of God's covenant is unconditional. But the enjoyment of God's covenant is conditional. Let me say that again, and I want you to process this with me. The giving of God's covenant is unconditional, but enjoyment of God's covenant is conditional. Before you freak out on me, hear me out. This is the same kind of relationship we have with our children, right? A parent loves their child regardless of their behavior, regardless of their obedience. But we all know if you listen to mom and dad, life will go well for you. But if you do not listen to mom and dad, there's going to be consequences, right? We understand that. As we are making disciples, it is so important that we share the whole gospel. The whole thing. Salvation is a free gift, but the result of authentic salvation 
is devotion. It's obedience. Marriage in the spiritual realm is free. In the physical, not so much. But in the spiritual realm, God gives us the gift of marriage and it's free for us. But there is an expectation of activity beyond the union. Am I right? Yes? Once you get married, there is an expectation of activity. And that's what God is communicating here. Look at Mark 1, 16 through 20 with me real quick. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants and followed him. Jesus calling us to himself always includes a call to action. The plan for furthering the gospel is that the people who have understood the gospel are going to share that with others. A part of the reason that the church is full of what we call these professional ministers and lots of unhappy people is because we cheapen the gospel by selling it as simply a free gift and never moving beyond that point. Yes, the gospel is a free gift, but it does not end there. The church in its most recent history, has had a focus on conversion and baptism, but very little activity in the area of discipling. The focus on just accepting Jesus, for me, creates what I call a blind date Christian. Like going on a blind date, meeting a person, having one date, thinking, oh, wow, they have a lot of money, and then marrying that person. It makes no sense, right? But you don't know that person. All you saw is what they wanted you to see. They might have rented that nice car. They might have borrowed that suit from somebody else. But they've put this image in front of you. And that's what we've done with a lot of believers. Is we've painted this image in front of them that's a true image. But that's all we've let them see. And then we, we get them in the church and we go, oh, by the way, there's some stuff you're supposed to do along with that. And they go, wait, what? That wasn't in the deal. I was just getting health, and, I mean, fire insurance, right? Like, I just didn't want to go to hell. That's why I gave my life to Jesus. I don't know about this doing stuff. Like, i got to teach a Sunday school class now? Not about that. I read a book recently, or a part of a book, called The Unsaved, Unsaved Christian by Dean and Sarah. It said, culture Christians are those who genuinely believe that they are on good terms with God because of church familiarity, a generic moral code, political affiliation, a religious family heritage, etc., Cultural Christianity is largely based on confusion. He goes on to explain that typical conversion is going down during an invitation to be saved from your sins. Sharing that Jesus died to save us from our sins is a very important part of the gospel. But it's not the whole gospel. There's more. And for a lot of us, we didn't hear the rest of that gospel until much later in life. No one ever explained that being a follower of Christ meant we actually had to follow Him. And as we just saw in our passage, when Jesus called His disciples and said, Come and I will make you fishers of men, they dropped everything in that moment and they followed Him. And we have turned Christianity into just walk down the aisle, let me dip you down in some water, and I'll pat you on the butt and you get out of here. And we'll get the next one. But that's not what it means to believe. When you become a believer, you become a follower. Look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you hear that? He says, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. We see in both Mark and in this Matthew passage a clear message from Jesus. And that message is that there is an expectation for believers to do what God commands. We see it all over the New Testament. Look at Mark 10, 17-31. And as he was sitting, setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around at his disciples and he said, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed by his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, with God, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first we've heard this story so many times the offer is right there in front of the rich young ruler jesus said here it is you want to be my disciple you want to be my follower here's what's going to cost you the offer was available to him however he was not willing to obey jesus call to obedience and therefore he could not be a follower and the disciples are astonished by this. But, but, but this is such a good guy. Look at all these things that he's done. And this is the lie that we fall into in the church. We talked about last week about how many of us have had these horrible experiences with deacons. And it's because the church said, wow, this is a great upstanding guy. I see a facade and that looks good to me. Let's put that person in leadership. And then the facade begins to crumble. And now we've placed men that are not followers of God in places of leadership. If you're struggling with this idea of having to do things, of this idea of enjoying the covenant requires our obedience, let me say this. I am in no way taking away the fact that God's gift of grace is free and that His grace covers all our sins. That is absolutely true. We say that all the time. We believe it. 
But that same grace that covers our sins should also motivate us to action. If we're not motivated by the grace of God, then we don't know God and we do not understand His grace. Jesus is saying in this Matthew 7 passage that many will claim, they'll claim Him and do works in His name, but that does not make them followers. This idea is perpetuated in the church through its actions as well as its message. New believers, they come, they get saved, they get baptized, they become part of the membership of the church, and then they look around and they see people just showing up and sitting and then leaving and nothing else happening in their lives in terms of their Christian belief. They assume that that's what a believer is. And they also assume that the pastor is the weird one. Can I get an amen? If the kind of lifestyle that is really required of a believer is the same that they see in a pastor, then the rest of the church would obviously be living that way as well. The idea of setting people free that we've been talking about this whole year means setting them free by telling them the whole gospel and not trapping them in a building full of moralistic, therapeutic deists. Not people who are coming because it's a social club, because it makes them feel good. To set them free means to share the gospel, help them understand God's grace, to know Him by experience, and that will spur them to action. Let's look at the last two verses and see what God's plan is for communicating the whole gospel. Verse 7, it says, this is Exodus 19, verse 7 through 9. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people of, to the Lord. God uses established leadership to communicate to the people. That's point number three for today. God uses established leadership to communicate to the people. Here we see God using the leadership structure that they just created in the last chapter when they were at Rephidim in order to communicate with, with Israel. Instead of Moses addressing all of the people directly, he speaks to the elders that have been appointed over them with the expectation that they will then go and share that same message with their people. And the reason for that is to allow for discussion and questions which would not be possible if the whole nation was before Moses. Number one, they wouldn't be able to hear him. And number two, they would not be able to give any kind of feedback. This, for our church, is one of the reasons that life groups matter so much and we emphasize them so much because they provide an environment where every person can be truly known. They can ask hard questions. They can discover truth. They can struggle together. They can grow in their understanding of God with people that they love and that they know love them. While we're here talking about life groups, let me take a moment and bring some clarity to the role of a life group leader. Okay, I shared with you guys last week that I, I mess up a lot, right? I started out the sermon and say, hey, I screwed up and I said the wrong name for a whole sermon, okay? I make mistakes. The elders make mistakes. 
And when we communicate something and you go, you know, that doesn't make 100% sense to me, please come ask us a question. God has structured our leadership in such a way that there are many of us, but he's giving us the same message. And, and I was talking with somebody this week, in a typical church setting, it is uh, not kosher, if you will, to go and question the pastor on something that he said. But I'm telling you, in this church, it is encouraged, highly encouraged. If I say something and you go, Will, I, I'm, let me make sure I understand this, please come ask me. If we are not clear, we need to know because it is our job to communicate what God is saying. So I want to give you guys permission right from the front. And so some people have asked some questions about the role of a life group leader because of the way we've been communicating that, and I want to bring clarity to it. In the past, and particularly at the life group leader uh, training, Glenn referred to life group leaders as pastors. Okay, now I've had a, a one-on-one meeting with Glenn, and then the elders all met last week because we wanted to completely clear this up for everybody. And let me say what, what his intent was there. The intent of calling a life group leader a pastor was not to promote them to a position, but it was to communicate the weight of what their call is. That a life group leader is not just a warm body that sits in a group of people and reads some questions off a piece of paper. Anybody could do that. You could have a 10-year-old do that and call him a life group leader if that was the case. But that's not what a life group leader is. Our cultural understanding of what a pastor is is a person who literally does most of the work, gets paid for it, and meets the needs of the church. But as we looked at our text last week, and as if we have walked out what it means to be a gathering place people, we understand that is not God's intent for the church or for us. So as we discussed this, and we talked about this question, we said if we're going to define a life group leader with any other word, what we should probably define that as is a fellow worker. We see Paul use that term many times to describe people who he trusted with ministry. We're going to call them fellow workers because this is what Paul calls them. And the life group leaders have been entrusted by the elders to take care of their life group in a similar fashion. The idea here is that leaders are not only responsible for a small number of people that, excuse me, the idea here is that, that leaders are only responsible for a small number of people instead of one person being responsible for the whole church for meeting all those needs. Okay, and in that same thought, let me say this. We are not expecting a single person in a life group to carry the entire load of that life group. Our expectation is, is that the life group leader, the fellow worker, is mentoring someone else who is assisting them in their leading so that at some point they can step up and take that role in that life group or start another one. But also that everyone, every member of the life group is fulfilling their role, their call in that life group. We would love it, by the way, if every life group had a deacon or a deaconess in it. I think that would be an amazing thing. But we will not, however, visit your life group and say, y'all don't have a deacon or a deaconess. You need to nominate somebody. (laughs) Yeah, that's not how this works, okay? To be a deacon or a deaconess is a call from God, okay? Another question that we've been asked as we're transitioning each life group, the question we've been asked is, are we transitioning each life group to be an autonomous church? No. And we're sorry if that caused any confusion. Again, we were calling life group leaders pastors to communicate the huge amount of responsibility that's been entrusted to each leader by the elders. But those life group leaders have no authority to operate outside the authority of the elders. In other words, the elders are entrusting each life group leader to to 
to operate in the distinctives and the vision that God has given for us, okay? Under those parameters, they care for the, and disciple their groups, okay? And we want, under, want everyone to understand that it's not just a warm body, okay? That's a cultural norm in churches around us that you just get somebody that says, yeah, I'll teach a class, and you give them a book and you put them in, in leadership. And that's, that's not what our goals are, okay? The elders, the deacons, the fellow workers all work in concert together as led by the Holy Spirit to take care of the needs of the church. And there is a synergy that comes by all of us in the church knowing the role that God has for us and operating as He leads in that role. As we begin to walk in obedience to God's call, as we fulfill these roles that God has set before us, we're going to start to see the beauty of what the church was intended to be. Because instead of all of the burden of ministry, because look, let's be honest, meeting other people's needs is burdensome. It is heavy. It is hard work. And God never intended for us to do that alone. My, my siblings and I and a, and a few uncles spent the day yesterday putting on a new floor in my little brother's house. My little brother's the one who has the daughter Lily that we've been praying for. And if I would have just gone on my own and tried to put that floor in by myself, could I have done it? Sure. Could I have done it as quickly and as efficiently as we did yesterday? No, of course not. And we're not done. We're going to continue to work on that floor until it's done. But that burden is so much lighter when it's shared with others. And that's how the church is supposed to operate. God did not set us up to be a bunch of lone wolves. All right, last week we spent a fair amount of time defining the different roles that we have here at TGP. And specifically, we looked at the role of deacon and deaconesses. So I want to briefly review some of that if you were not here. But please go back and listen to the podcast because there's going to be some things that I'm not going to say today that are important for you to hear because otherwise I'd be preaching two sermons at once and we don't, no one wants that, right? You do? No? Okay, all right. Everybody said no. All right, good. Podcast land, they said no. It was just quiet. Okay, so what we talked about last week is there is a clear distinction between an elder and a deacon. Traditionally, we've seen deacons and a lot of other Southern Baptist churches operate in the role of an elder. We will not be doing that here, okay? Biblically, elders are overseers in the church whose primary focus is on spiritual matters. Deacons are servants in the church whose primary focus is on physical matters, okay? And we talk about that this is not a hierarchy like one's better than the other. They're just different roles that God calls us to. And it doesn't mean your role can never change. It's not like you're going to sign up to be a deacon and you're locked into that for the rest of your life. It may just be for a season. But we have always and will always let all of that go through the Lord. If you come to us and say, Will, I feel called to be in this level of leadership, the elders are going to pray through that. And we're going to affirm that that's God's call and then we're going to do what God says. End of story. Okay? We looked at um, the, the word diakonos. Okay? which is the Greek word for deacon and deaconess, and it translates to a servant or a minister in the church. And if you remember, the first uh, time we really see deacons is in the, the book of Acts when the church is first forming, and the apostles say, it is not good for us. There are those that are complaining about the fact that the widows are not being handled, the Hellenistic widows are not being handled the way they need to, and the apostles said, it is not good for us to set aside the work of ministry, or the work of ministering of the word in order to take care of the widows. So we're going to appoint some people who are called to this to take over that ministry, okay? And then we looked at yesterday, and I want to mention this because it's important, okay? 
we looked at the fact that Paul specifically mentions that a woman can serve as a deaconess. It's in Romans 16, 1 through 2, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Kinshray. I don't know how to say that. Did my best. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul is telling the church in Rome to receive Phoebe in the role as a deaconess because that is what she is called to in the area in which she has been serving. Okay? I know it's not traditional in an SBC to have female deacons, but for me and for the elders, it is clear that in this scripture, in this passage, that women were allowed to serve in that capacity. Okay? And nowhere in scripture does it say specifically that they cannot. The elders looked at this and we talked about it again this week because some people asked some really good questions about women in, in leadership in that area. But we're confident in what Scripture says. As we looked at this passage, it's clear to us that women served in that role. And if you are struggling with that, please come talk to me or one of the elders. Let me share with you what we've discovered as we've studied and as we've asked God about this. Okay? And it's, it's, I want you to be free to ask those questions because, guys, for me, my heart, it is so important that we get this right. Okay, look, I know that God calls us to things sometimes that's not traditional. It's not the cultural norm. And it is so important for me that we are all on the same page. So please come ask questions. I need that feedback. Okay, look, I want to bring us back to our Exodus passage to close this out today. Okay, so in closing, let's look at verse 9 one more time. I promise we're close. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the Lord, of the people to the Lord. Listen, in the midst of all our talking about deacons and elders and fellow workers, it is so important that we do not lose sight of the purpose of all of this. And we started with this purpose today. God wants to reveal himself to his people. That's it. From the very beginning, God has wanted his people to know him. He does all of this activity in the life of Israel and in our life so that we can know him and know that he loves us. The same is true for us just as it is for Israel. Why is God continuing to push us forward? Because he wants us to know that he loves us and he wants us to make that known to his people. He is calling us to himself. He is calling us to action. He is establishing framework for, in order to get that done because he wants us to know him. That's it. That is the bottom line. At the end of the day, if you heard nothing else from me today, I want you to hear this. We are doing all of this for one purpose, and that is to make Christ known in our neighborhoods and where we live. That's it. That's what all this is about. At the end of the day, the enemy can kind of try to take this and twist it and get people at odds with one another because we might interpret a scripture a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we are all looking at the same thing. We have the same spirit living inside of us. And if there is any conflict, which there's not at this any point, we can resolve it because we're going to let the Holy Spirit do that. Because at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want to know what God wants and we want to obey that. And we want people to know him. Okay, here's my hope. Here's all that I'm asking for of you, my people. Okay, you listen, this is all I ask for. All I'm asking is that you guys will get in the Word and you will pray and you will abide. 
That's it. Last week, I gave you guys a rundown of what my week looks like, okay? And I had some people before and after be like, Will, that's crazy. You're doing too much. Listen, here's why I do that. I do all of that because I love it. I love it. I love you, and I love the Word. Look, let me tell you something. I know I've talked to you before. You guys know I have some fancy software that helps me decipher some of this stuff that I should have learned how to do when I was in college, but I was a terrible student and didn't do. Look, you don't have to have that. Most of the stuff that I share from this pulpit is because I take a chunk of Scripture and I spend an entire week just reading it and studying it and asking questions and saying, God, what did you mean by this? And letting the Holy Spirit speak through that. And you know what happens? And we've heard Glenn talk about this. What happens is, is as you do that, as you really digest a piece of Scripture, it expands your understanding of who God is and you fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with Him. And I want that for you. But the only way that can happen is by you getting in the Word. I can't do that for you. You can't live that vicariously through me. You have to do that, and I want it for you. Take one chapter a week, study it, understand it, and and use resources if you want. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I use resources, but I'm saying you don't have to have them in order for God to speak to you. If you will do that, it's going to blow your mind, okay? It's going to blow your mind. Look, at the end of the day, we've talked about a lot of stuff today. But God is calling some of us to leadership right now, We're asking, if you feel called to be a deacon or a deaconess, come see me or one of the other elders because we want to pray with you and affirm that calling through the Holy Spirit, okay? And I was telling somebody last night, I I don't want to rush this in terms of we've got to hurry up and get some people in leadership, but I also don't want to drag my feet too long because God has called us to do this. Okay, so we're going to leave that window open for another week or two for you to come. And we already have, I have a list of names already. It's not that no one signed up and I'm making a plug. Okay, if no one was to sign up, that's fine. That's just between you and God. Okay, but I want you guys to be actively praying about it. Please talk about this in life group. Um, Life group leaders, I sent out some questions last week. I'm going to send out some more this week because even if you're in the middle of a book study, please take some of your time to talk through some of this stuff because it's important life group leaders... Your role in this is to to disciple your life group in understanding what God's call, what God's vision is for us, but operating in our distinctives, right? Okay, let's pray. I love you guys, and I am so excited about what God's doing here. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the work that you're doing here in our church. God, I I am so honored that you allow us to, to just dig into your word and to know you. God, it is my hope, it is my prayer, it is my desire that you would call all of us into deeper understanding of who you are and that by that experience, that would motivate us to obey. That it wouldn't be about just trying to get somebody happy or fulfilling a cultural um, stigma, but God, that you would call us each individually out of passion for who you are and to make you known in the people's lives that are around us. God, I ask this week that you would bring us into a new understanding of who you are, that as we dig into Scripture, that you would reveal yourself to us, that our minds would be blown at your goodness and at your grace, and that that would make it to where we just can't help but tell people about it. God, we know that at the end of the day, no one comes to you on their own. You call them to yourself. And God, we see in Scripture that you are moving 
Israel to know you. Father, I feel that about our body, that you are moving us to know you. So God, we know that we need you to give us the desire to pursue you. So God, corporately today, we ask for that, that you would move us to desire.